listening to the official podcast of the Mission Redlands. We are a growing community living out God's radical love. You more excited uh, than those weeks leading up to Christmas, and uh, Leslie and I talked about this last week. Uh, but in for our generation, in mid-October, the Sears catalog arrived at the house. Some of you will remember this. And it was about that thick. And the back half of that catalog had all the toys that were available. And it was amazing. And we would go through and we'd circle the toys we wanted. We'd fold over the pages and hope that our parents found the right ones and uh, got excited about telling them all the things that we were interested in getting for Christmas. And in this one particular Christmas, um, the toy that I really wanted was called the electric football game. I desperately wanted it. I probably circled that thing six times on that page. In fact, I think there's a picture of it there for any of you of the right generation. And, um, <laughs> hey, come on, it was cutting edge at the time. And I desperately wanted this game. I'd asked my parents for it over and over again. And as it came time for my parents to do their Christmas shopping, they went out to the store and they looked at it and they thought, you know, I just do not think that Brian's going to like that game, um, we're going to get him something else. And so they got me a rod hockey game. So, but, you know, thankfully there are such things as grandparents. And my grandparents found out that my parents were not going to get me the game that I really wanted. And you know how grandparents are. So they bought me the electric football game. So Christmas Day came, and I tear open presents. um, And there's the electric football game and the rod hockey game. And... The electric football game, later in the afternoon and Christmas Day, we have it set up, and I get it all set up, and I turn it on, and I don't know if you guys knew this game, but all it did was vibrate, like this right here on top of it, and these little figurines would sort of run into each other, and it was like, oh my goodness, this is not very good at all. I sort of looked at it, and you know, what do you say? And uh, it looks like it's going to be very boring. In fact, I hardly ever played with the game. A couple days later, I pull out the rod hockey game, and we get the rod hockey game set up, and it turns out it is a blast. We had so much fun with that game. Our family had fun with it. I remember eventually we had tournaments in our neighborhood on this rod hockey game. Absolutely loved it. Best toy ever. And I was thinking about this. You know, that rod hockey game was not the toy that I wanted for Christmas, but it was the toy that brought me the most joy, brought me the most happiness. If you flash back 2,000 years before, at the first Christmas, uh, what were the Jews looking for? The Jewish people uh, were looking for a savior that would overthrow the Romans. The Romans, every time a Jewish man walked out in Jerusalem and he saw a Roman soldier, it was like a slap in the face. Here they were, supposedly God's chosen people, and they were conquered by the Romans, who took from them tremendous amounts of taxes that uh, had had, uh, kept them in captivity And uh, it was this reminder for them that they wanted a savior. They wanted another King David that would come and bring military conquest and bring military victory for the Jewish people and bring an usher in an era of prosperity. And instead, on that Christmas morning, there was a whole different kind of savior born. And so, uh, just a little bit like that Rod hockey game, the Jewish people were looking for a savior, a certain kind of savior. They didn't get the kind of savior that they wanted They got the kind of savior that they needed. And our tendency as people today is we tend to be the same way. We're looking for a certain kind of savior. We're looking for 
uh, somebody that's going to fix the problems that exist within our family, that's going to provide financial benefits for us, that's going to uh, solve the immediate problems that I have in life, and yet we have a different kind of Savior. We're going to see that in Scripture today. Um, this whole series, uh, we've been looking at the fact that the Old Testament Scriptures uh, come alive uh, through a presentation of Christ Jesus. So in the uh, first week of the series, uh, Pastor, uh, Dr. Mark looked at a, a, a sermon that Paul gives in Acts that sort of recounts the whole Old Testament story through the eyes of the, the arrival of Jesus Christ. In the second week of the series, uh, Professor Ricardo takes us into the Psalms, and there again we see this realization that a thousand plus years before Christ was born, there was a picture of his arrival already there. And then last week, uh, Pastor Jason took a look at the story of Abraham and Isaac in this wonderful picture we had of God's provision of a Savior even thousands of years uh, before Christ was born. And this week, uh, we're going to be looking at uh, a guy named Isaiah. And Isaiah was a prophet. Uh, I think often when we hear the word prophet, we think of somebody that sort of foretells the future. But in the sense of scripture, all a prophet was, was somebody that spoke God's words to the people. So Isaiah was a prophet, and he spoke God's words to his people. He lived approximately 700 to 800 years before Christ was born. Um, he ministered during the end of what was called the Northern Kingdom and during a difficult period in the Southern Kingdom. And just to explain a little bit about that, uh, after King David ruled Israel, uh, his son Solomon ruled Israel, and uh, then after Solomon, uh, Solomon's son Rehoboam took over, and the kingdom was split. There was a civil war, and there was a division, and there was a northern kingdom, and I think we have a picture of that uh, uh, for us as well. We have a northern kingdom that you can't see very well. Um, we have a northern kingdom called Israel and a southern kingdom called Judah. And it was very quickly after this division that the northern kingdom, the kings just chose to follow their own ways. They did not want to follow the ways of God. So idolatry became the prevailing uh, religion or paradigm within the northern kingdom. Uh, the southern kingdom, some of the kings were good, some of the kings weren't good in terms of their uh, following of God. But uh, uh, Isaiah comes along at a time where the kingdom is split like this, and his ministry involves a really critical time uh, for the people of Israel. What's interesting about Isaiah is that his name means uh, the Lord is salvation. And his ministry was built around this idea that God was the answer, that looking for man to provide the solution to problems was going to be an issue. So uh, during uh, his reign, uh, during his ministry, the uh, uh, people of Israel in Judah in the southern part were under attack at one particular time period uh, by the Assyrians. And if you want to bring up a picture of the slide uh, that shows the Assyrians. The Assyrians were one of the uh, early ancient Mesopotamian uh, cultures that ended up conquering what at that time was much of the known world. And eventually they would conquer and control all the way down into Egypt, all the way through what's modern day Iraq and Iran where their country had originated um, and uh, during the reign of Isaiah, Assyria captured the northern kingdom, captured uh, the northern kingdom, took people into captivity. That happened in 722 B.C. At the same time, they decide to attack Jerusalem. And in their attack at Jerusalem, Hezekiah was the king, 
and he prays to the Lord as Isaiah directs him to do. Remember, Isaiah's name means the Lord is salvation. And that's what Isaiah's message was to Hezekiah, trust God. And there's a miracle that happens and the whole army of Assyria is wiped out. It, that surrounding Jerusalem is wiped out in one night and they leave uh, Judah alone. But Israel was captured. Uh, what other interesting thing about Isaiah is that he was actually related to royalty, maybe even a nephew of the king. And uh, th because of that position, uh, he gave him some unique opportunities. In fact, there's a description in scripture where he sends his servants to the king to relay a message. Uh, that's probably one of the very few prophets that would actually have uh, his own so uh, servants. But today we're going to look at the book that uh, Isaiah wrote. We're going to look specifically at Isaiah chapter, chapter 53, if you want to turn in your Bibles to that uh, book. So Isaiah chapter 53, and I will actually read uh, the entire passage for you. Who has believed what he has heard from us? And to whom has the arm of the Lord been revealed? For he grew up before him like a young plant and like a root out of dry ground. He had no form or majesty that we should look at him and no beauty that we should desire him. He was despised and rejected by men, a man of sorrows and acquainted with grief. And as one from whom men hide their faces, he was despised, and we esteemed him not. Surely he has borne our griefs, he has carried our sorrows, yet we esteemed him stricken, smitten by God, and afflicted. But he was pierced for our transgressions, he was crushed for our iniquities. Upon him was a chastisement that brought us peace, and with his wounds we are healed. All we like sheep have gone astray, and we have turned, everyone, to his own way. And the Lord has laid on him the iniquity of us all. He was oppressed and he was afflicted, yet he opened not his mouth. Like a lamb that is led to the slaughter, and like a sheep that before its shearers is silent, so he opened not his mouth. By oppression and judgment he was taken away, and as for his generation who considered that he was cut off out of the land of the living, stricken for the transgression of my people, and they made his grave with the wicked and with a rich man in his death. Although he had done no violence and there was no deceit in his mouth, yet it was the will of the Lord to crush him. He's put him to grief. When his soul makes an offering for guilt, he shall see his offspring. He shall prolong his days. The will of the Lord shall prosper in his hand. Out of the anguish of his soul he shall see and be satisfied. By his knowledge shall the righteous one, my servant, make many to be accounted righteous, and he shall bear their iniquities. Therefore, I will divide him a portion with the many, and he shall divide the spoil with the strong, because he poured out his soul to death and was numbered with the transgressors. Yet he bore the sin of many and makes intercession for the transgressors. Let's pause and pray. God, may your word come alive to us today. Here's this scripture written 700 years before Christ is born, and in it we see such an amazing picture of what your son went through on our behalf, Lord. Uh, help us to remember that you are the Savior that the world needs. You are the Savior that we need uh, as we go and look at this passage today. We thank you for this in Christ's name. Amen. Uh, what I want to look at today is this idea that uh, Jesus was not the Savior that the world is looking for, but that he was the Savior that the world needed. Now, I see this in several places in this passage. Uh, first, take a look at verse number 2. We see here that he's not the leader that the world would choose, right? It says he had no former majesty that we should look at him and no beauty that we should desire him. 
When you think about the kind of leaders that we look for as people in our society, we look for those charismatic individuals. Uh, you know, even when you were in the voting booth in November this year, there was a tendency, our, our candidate, the candidate that won, had a certain kind of charisma, and that kind of charisma attracted people to vote for him. Um, our last, our, pre- our current president now was a, a, essentially the same kind of individual. There was a charisma. The newspaper articles about Obama when he was first elected, elected captured that element of truth about him. And yet we see that the kind of savior that the world needs doesn't fit that characteristic. There was nothing about Jesus Christ in terms of charisma or what he looked like that would draw people to him. Uh, when the Jewish people were first asked God if they could have a king in the Old Testament, and they uh, select Saul. They want Saul to be their king. He was tall and handsome and, and a military figure. And he was the kind of person that should be king in their minds. And, and yet he's not the person that God would have chosen in that situation. And again, we see that God's wisdom confounds uh, the world, even in the person and how he uh, sets his son up uh, in terms of being a savior. Second point that I have today is he's... Uh, He's not the leader that we would be proud of. What does it say in verse 3? He's a man of sorrows and acquainted with grief. He's one from whom men hide their faces. He was despised and we esteemed him not. Um, I was thinking about that idea of men hiding their faces. And where do we see this in scripture? We see this when Adam and Eve eat of the tree of the knowledge of good and evil. They've been told by God, do not eat. You can do anything you want. You can eat of anything you want. Just don't eat of this tree of the knowledge of good and evil. And yet they do that. And that's how sin is introduced into the world. And God, uh, prior to sin, would come down and um, commune. It would live, act, be with uh, Adam and Eve in the garden. And after they sin and God's going to come down and in the garden to meet with them, what do they do? They run and they hide. Because they know that God can't have sin in their uh, presence, sin in his presence. Uh, But I don't think that this passage really relates specifically to that kind of uh, hiding. I think it's almost the other extreme where it's the idea of being embarrassed by uh, the kind of savior that Christ is, right? We have a tendency to want to hide the fact that we're followers of Christ to not be, uh, if when Christ does not fit the kind of savior that we want him to be, uh, we hide our faces from it. Third point that I want to make here is that uh, he was not the leader whose mission we understand, right? The Jewish people expected this new King David, somebody who would throw off the Romans, that would uh, conquer back, take back the territory that they had lost to Rome, that they would usher in this period of Jewish prosperity, this uh, Jewish military victory, uh, and that yet that's not the kind of Savior that came, not the kind of Messiah that came. In fact, they didn't even understand his mission at all. It says here, he was pierced for our transgressions. He was crushed for our iniquities. Upon him was the chastisement that brought us peace. So 700 years before Christ was born, this passage has already uh, given us a prophecy about how Christ would die, right? He was pierced uh, exactly when he was nailed on the cross for our transgressions. And talk about a different ministry. This wasn't a savior coming for military reasons. This was a savior coming because there was a problem in the world that needed to be fixed. There's a sin problem that every one of us has has today, um, and that's what the word transgressions means. It means the things that we've done that are bad, are the sins that we've done. And it says, uh, upon him was the chastisement, the punishment that brought us peace. What does it mean by that kind of peace? And I shared this a little bit the last time I spoke, but when Adam and Eve 
chose sin, when they chose to disobey God, uh, that broke the relationship between man and God. It created a lack of peace between man and God. And there was nothing that could bridge that gap for us. There's nothing that we could do to bridge that gap. We, we had a problem that we could not possibly solve. And God, seeing that, God wants a relationship with man, says, I'm going to provide a solution to that problem. I'm going to find a way to bridge that gap. And I need something that will, take, that will fulfill the holiness that I have. Because I can't have sin in my presence, I have to have something done that will take away the sin of humankind. And he sends his son as the perfect sacrifice to uh, bridge that gap, to provide that mechanism, that means by which God's holiness could be fulfilled. Uh, and it describes it here in this passage. What a different mission than the world expected uh, is a mission for uh, dealing with the transgressions and sins uh, that we have. Next point in here is that the Savior was not a general but a shepherd. The Jewish people were looking for this military leader. Uh, they were looking for somebody that would conquer their enemies. And yet it describes in this passage in verse uh, 7 or verse 6 uh, that it says, All we like sheep have gone astray, and we have turned, every one of us, to his own way. What does sheep need? Does sheep need a general or does sheep need a shepherd? Sheep need a shepherd, right? And God sent us exactly the kind of Savior that we needed. How are we like sheep? Well, for one, we tend to wander off, right? We tend to want to go our own way. We tend to want to uh, leave the places of safety and go out on our own in ways that uh, put ourselves in danger, uh, both spiritually, physically, and so on. Second way that we're like sheep is that we are easily led astray, right? Uh, false prophets, uh, people that are speaking words that seem like truth to us, draw us away from the real truth. Uh, we're led astray uh, by uh, the messages that we get through media, uh, by what you're, the messages that we get in social media and so on. And these messages take us away from uh, the real truth. And because we're like sheep, we need a shepherd. So God's Savior is a shepherd. Next in verse 7, uh, we see a Savior that's not assured of his own rightness, but humble. It says he was oppressed and he was afflicted, yet he opened not his mouth. Uh, we see this fulfilled in John chapter 19. John chapter 19, Jesus Christ is uh, on trial before Pontius Pilate. Pilate was the top Roman leader uh, in the city of Jerusalem. He was uh, the ultimate power. His decision was going to make the difference with what happened with Christ's life. And Pilate was not a very strong leader. Uh, the Jewish uh, religious leaders were pressuring him to, uh, to uh, convict Christ. But he'd already talked enough to Christ to know that this guy is not guilty. So he gives Jesus an, a chance to answer, uh, tell me, uh, essentially tell me, are you guilty? And Christ makes a decision in that moment not to answer him. And he says, why are you silent? And eventually leads to the death of Christ. And I thought our tendency as Christians uh, today, as we think about the kind of savior that we want, we think about the kind of leaders that we want, we often think about the person that's really good about standing up for their rights, about really good about um, you know, uh, speaking up in situations that are, uh, where they themselves are uh, being hurt or, or punished or, or and so on. 
And yet, that's not the kind of Savior that Christ sent us. He sent us somebody that was humble enough to recognize that I have an ultimate purpose here that's not understood by the world around me. I don't have to stand up for my own rightness because God will stand up for my rightness. Then in verse 9, we see something else. There's no glory in his death. Verse 9 says, uh, And they made his grave with the wicked and with a rich man in his death, although he had done no violence. So when, when we think of a savior for the world, right, we think of like an Alexander the Great who dies in the glory of battle and this incredible uh, death that he experiences. That seems like the kind of death that would be appropriate for a messianic figure, for a savior. Or we look just a few weeks ago uh, when Castro passed away in Cuba, uh, the whole country whether they were forced to or did it on their own. But the whole country celebrates in different kinds of ways his, his passing, mourns for him in this cavalcade that goes from city to city throughout the whole country of Cuba. That's the way a Messiah or a Savior should die, right? Where it's, their death is just honored and, um, and uh, recognized by everyone for what it really is. And yet in this verse, we see a picture of what will happen when Christ uh, would die um, 700 years in the future. They made his grave with the wicked, with a rich man in his death. Um, remember, when Christ died, there were two wicked men that were hung on the crosses next to him. So 700 years before this happens to Christ, Isaiah predicts perfectly what will happen. Two wicked men are hung on the crosses with him, and then when his body is taken from the cross, uh, Joseph of Arimathea, a rich man, says, I have a tomb uh, specifically that I would like to use for this Jesus of Nazareth. So fulfilling the rest of this passage that is with a rich man uh, in his death. And then finally in, uh, in verses 11 and 12, we see specifically that Jesus Christ is not the Savior we would choose, but the Savior we need. Out of the anguish of his soul... He, uh, he shall see and be satisfied. By his knowledge shall the righteous one, my servant, make many to be accounted righteousness, and he shall bear their iniquities. Therefore I will divide him a portion with the many, and he shall divide the spoil with the strong, because he poured out his soul to death. It was numbered with the transgressors, yet he bore the sin of many and makes intercession for the transgressors. Folks, our need for a savior is real. Our need for a savior comes because of the sin that we have, the transgressions that we've done, uh, and yet there's a way of salvation that's provided for us because of what Christ has done. It says here, he make, makes many to be accounted righteousness. What does this mean? This means that when, after, when we accept what Christ has done, when we say, Lord, I take your righteousness upon me, uh, I recognize that you're, through the death of your son, I can now have a relationship with you, that God now looks at us as being without sin. Isn't that amazing? You know all the bad things. I know the bad things I do. I'm sure you know the bad things that you do. And those bad things, the sin that we have, separates us from God, makes it impossible for us to have a relationship with him. And what does he do? He provides his son. And in the death of his son, it says here um, that uh, many are made accounted righteous, uh, and he shall bear their iniquities. So Christ has taken on these sins, these bad things that we've done, and now God can look at us as being righteous. We can now have this relationship with God because of what Christ has done. 
as we conclude this morning, um, I just would challenge you. Our tendency as human beings is to want to have the kind of Savior that we want. The kind of person that can take that tough relationship that we have with our mom and fix it. You know, that's really, if, everything, if everything, else, everything else in my life is fine, if this one thing could be fixed, I'd be okay. Or you know what, man, I could hardly have enough money to make it from paycheck to paycheck. God could just take care of that one thing for me, I'd be okay. Um, you know, that boss at work that just drives me crazy, if that, if that one thing could be fixed in my life, I would be okay. Uh, that's the kind of Savior that we want, this little Savior that sort of does our stuff for us. In reality, our tendency is to want Santa Claus, Right? Our tendency is to want the kind of Savior that we sort of ask things of, get the things that we want, and what God has provided for us is the kind of Savior that we need. I just challenge every one of us today to think about this. Recognize the fact that each one of us has a need for a Savior, and it's only when we accept what He has done that we can have that right relationship with God restored. Let's uh, close in prayer. God, we are grateful to you, Lord. Thank you for providing a way. Thank you for giving us this picture in the Old Testament, too, of your, your coming provision for us. As Christ fulfilled that prophecy 700 years later and became the means, the mechanism by which your need for holiness could be fulfilled, Lord. God, I just would challenge that every one of us here today would see that you've provided the Savior that we need. You haven't provided necessarily the Savior we want, and it's in those wants that we have our problems, the want and the desires to have a Santa Claus that would fix things, Lord. But you've provided something so much more that in the restoration of the right relationship with you, the answers to these other problems come as well. Thank you for that, Lord. And as we uh, continue to celebrate your birth this season, may we remember the true reason uh, for the season. We ask this in Christ's name. Amen. podcast of The Mission Redlands. For more information, visit us at themissionredlands.com.